Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, Ramiumptum Ruminations. My name is Scott, and I'm the host. Today's very special episode is called Behind the Scenes at BYU-Idaho Admissions with Brady Nordfeldt. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, Ramiumptum Ruminations. I am joined again by Brady Nordfeldt. He worked for 11 years at BYU-Idaho in the admissions department. Our previous ep- episode, we discussed a number of things uh, about his um, his religious deconstruction, working in the admissions department. We talked about the honor code. We talked about marketing and some surveys that they did. Great episode. Go check out that previous one. But again, welcome to the podcast, Brady Nordfeldt. Thanks for having me again, Scott. Our discussion last week was amazing. I am excited to jump back into things. The Some of the subjects that we didn't dive uh, very far into was some of the hierarchy, the organization, the leadership, and kind of what it was like working for the LDS church with, you know, it's, it's an extension. This is the school, but it's owned and operated very similarly to the religious institution. For sure. So then maybe to, to wrap this discussion off on maybe your time with admissions and some of the, the things that we've been discussing, what was it like reading applications? And what was what was that process like? What are some of the insights, you know, behind the scenes? I mean, there's so many of us that we we go through the whole process and it's been, you know, a, a while since I've submitted my application. But yeah, you, you go through the process, you write everything, you send it off, and there's almost this like, I have no idea what happens and I have no idea what goes into the decision of actually getting in or out. So what, what was that process like? Um, and obviously, I can only speak to BYU-Idaho, but because we're admitting 96% of the people who apply, or 97 whatever it is, um, all the applications come in, and they are read first by a student. And if, that's, if there's a certain criteria that then that student that works in our office, they look at and they're like, okay, they meet all the criteria, they can just admit them. Simple and easy. So it's like, and if you have above a 2.0 GPA, that's one of the criteria. It's a super high standard. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and above a 16 on the ACT or equivalent SAT, also, um, those, as you can see, most people can get to that achievement. Um, and then there's no red flag as far as like the bishop's endorsement, stake president, or the seminary recommendation. Th- and there, there used to be essays. We don't have essays anymore, but they would read through the essays. And if there was nothing weird or anything like that, then the student would just admit them. So that was the, the biggest chunk was taken care of by students. If there was any sort of question whatsoever, or if it was like remotely close, the student would click a button and it would randomly send them off to all the different full-time people that worked there. And then it would show up in a queue and we would then go through those applications and we would uh, get a second review on that. For the most part, those tended to be, yeah, like a lower GPA. So it was like a 15 ACT or like a 1.9 GPA or, I mean, I saw people with like 1.5 GPAs and things like that. Um, And so we'd have to make a judgment call on that. 
we would sometimes look at their transcript from high school and you could sometimes see, oh, uh, well, <clears throat> there was this one semester where they got like terrible grades and maybe they had some sort of injury or they had like, you know, a life event that took place. And so the rest of their grades were fine and you're, you're good to go. And we'd just make a judgment call. Um, if it was a bishop or stake president endorsement that had questions, uh, we would often call that bishop or stake president to get further information from them. Um, same with seminary uh, teachers. And but it was the hard thing was is they never wanted it to come back to them that this is the reason the, why a student's being denied, and and so I totally get their point. Like a lot of them would just like, uh, yeah, they're fine. You can just you can because they don't want it to be like. And it's it's not like we're gonna tell the student when they call in, right? But if a student calls into us and they're like, I was denied, and I just I'm trying to find out why. Our blanket statement was we don't reveal. There's a lot of factors that go into it. Um, just look at your application and, you know, try and up what you think you might be able to do better on and re- reapply later on. And then the kid's sitting there going, I have a 3.8 GPA and I got like a 27 on the ACT. Like, I don't know why you guys are denying me. It's not a hard leap for them to be like, hmm, I'm good at church. My bishop really likes me but I'm not the greatest seminary student. And it's like pinned on the seminary teacher all of a sudden, you know? And then you get this angry parent that goes to the seminary teacher. And then we hear from the seminary teachers like, why did you rat me out? And I'm like, I didn't say anything. (laughs) Um, So the interesting thing is over time, we used to look at seminary information, like whether they were a graduate and what the recommendation said. But when I left, we that was like not a thing we even considered really anymore. It was like, it was there. And if it was like, they didn't graduate, still admit. If there was a negative comment, you would look at it closely and just be like, "Eh, they're just not paying attention to seminary. We're fine. We'll go on. If it was like, they're a big disruption in class. Like he said some terrible things, then we would follow up. But really like we didn't care. Well, you would think, and and maybe this is, um, kind of maybe putting like a believer's cap back on someone who's struggling in seminary, maybe doesn't get their bishop's endorsement. Wouldn't that be precisely the person that the school wants to bring in to help build a testimony, maybe help them, you know, grow their faith and stay part of the church. Does that go into the decision-making process at all? Or is that not even something that's considered? No, like there were, (laughs) according to the university, like, their actions, we're totally a fine once they get here to help them out. But if they're not good before they come here, we're not helping <laughs> you out. Like that's basically, and, and like, so I had a, an instance that's kind of related to this where if a person goes on a mission, so they, they defer um, for their mission, their, their status at the university, and they come home early it used to be the case that they had to wait like six months before they could then enter the university, right? And regardless of why they came back, that's not the case anymore. Now it's just a matter of like the, the uh, mission president kind of writes a note and says, oh, they came home for mental health reasons or whatever. And it's like, okay, we're good. And I remember at that time, this mother called me and she's like, my son came home because he had to have I think it was a a mental health issue, right? 
he's fine now, but like it's we're not going to send him back out. And now he has to wait six months. She's like, so you're telling me it would have been better for him to not even try, right? <sighs> to go on a mission. Because he could have then been a student there. And I was like, I don't make the rules. Yeah, if you have issues, worthiness issues before you come, they all have to be taken care of before you come. Now, I say that, but there, I, I have a sense, and I, I, I have that on good like things that I've heard that a lot of bishops are like, I'd much rather have them around a bunch than rather than stay here in say Fort Collins, Colorado where all of their friends have left and gone on to college and they're just stuck at home with whatever kind of transgression they're dealing with, I would much rather have them at BYU-Idaho where they're surrounded by a bunch of good influences. And so a lot of bishops, I'm pretty sure, just endorse them to get them there so that they can then have it a better place for them. Was there a lot of overlap between the religious influence and maybe the operational side of BYU-Idaho. How did that play out on your side of things? So you're, you're not just on like the professor's pedagogical side of the school, you're in administration. So you're seeing a whole different side of how a school is operating. Maybe since you worked for the LDS church, you don't have a view of what it would be like working in admissions in another school. But what was that like? Was there, was there an interplay, interplay between the religion and the institution? What, uh, what was your perspective there? Yeah, for sure. Like, Obviously, like the church kind of um, is intertwined with everything that happens at that university. Um, Every meeting you would go to would kind of start with prayer and and all that kind of stuff. Oftentimes, scriptures were read to like um, make a point (laughs) for some sort of business business application and thing like that. and and then, then oftentimes I felt personally there were certain times where like the church came into it where it was like that doesn't how does that apply in this point like it shouldn't apply in this point of our conversation because now you're mixing up maybe like priesthood like authority where nobody has any priesthood authority in this situation, right? Like a religious stewardship over the institution? Is that kind of... Yeah, exactly, right? And so you have like... An example of this would be... And I wasn't there for this. I was just told afterwards. Um, When I was getting hired, um, there were something like 98 applicants that applied for it. And and so when I got... Showed up for my first day there. I was meeting. I was meeting this guy who would later become one of my really good friends, and he was like telling me that when they did the interview process, they got a, a down to a couple of us. Right, there was three of us that they they brought in, and they flew me over from um, from Colorado where I was at. And after that meeting, they had a big meeting as an office, and they decided to go home and think about it and pray about it. Right, was the thing, which really can kind of get tricky if all of a sudden people show up with different like answers to this praying about who's supposed to be hired right and so they come back the next day and the director supposedly had received revelation that it was supposed to be me now another guy that was part of the hiring committee didn't feel the same way and he was like no you can't you can't say revelation that that doesn't work in this situation and they kind of had like had it out but 
the director who had the revelation was his superior and basically it was like, you get on board with this. And it caused a bit of like issue between the two of them, especially because claiming revelation in a situation where nobody really had any like priesthood, like authority, or it's a tricky situation when it comes to a business that you're receiving a revelation. <laughs> um, so that's kind of an, an example. And obviously, I don't think that that's a normal thing. because. I'd heard it mentioned many times that like, nope, that can't be a part of this conversation. Was his position, this director, was it an ecclesiastical position or was it a secular one? No, he's, he's just an administrative director. Like it has nothing to do with the church. There's no, it's not a calling or anything like that. It's a job. So nobody at the university has any sort of authority that way, priesthood wise, except I guess maybe the, the president? I don't know. Um, I don't know how that would be. I mean, obviously, there's no there's no line of authority there. He usually is a general authority in that situation. But he's not set apart to be the president of the school. No, yeah. So, yeah, it wouldn't be. But that's where it gets tricky. It's like when you bring in the church into these situations, it's like, well, who's to say who's right and wrong in this situation? Because who has the authority, right? Like, who should be receiving revelation for this thing? <laughs> we can talk maybe about the hiring process. You applied, there's 80 other applicants. What was the interview process like? What was it like getting into? Did you have to go through multiple rounds of interviews? Was it just you send in your thing and they called maybe three people back for an interview? Yeah, so I applied and then I got a phone call that I was, uh, it was down to a, a handful of people and they wanted to do a phone interview. Um, and so I did a phone interview and obviously, as you know, for my charming self, I passed with flying colors. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so then I got a phone call later on and they were like, we want you to come in for an in-person interview. I don't know who the other two applicants were. There was three of us that were final. Um, they, I, I think I said they flew me over, but that's not true. They, they were going to fly me over, but my parents happened to come and visit us in Colorado. Okay. The right before the interview. And so I, I drove home with them and then I flew home. Um, but yeah, I had the interview in person and it was at that time, it was basically with all the full-time people in the admissions office that I had. I had a, a, an interview and then I had a specific interview with the director of admissions and his boss, which would be the area manager. Oh, man, it's been like a year since I've been out of there. Is that what it's called, area manager? <laughs> um, and then I had another interview with the vice president over admissions. And so that was my, my whole day, basically doing interviews with all those people. So how, how many full-time employees were in the admissions department, maybe in a similar role as you held? Yeah, so you had a director, um, and then there, and this kind of changed over time as well, typically around three managers, and then each manager had a couple of people underneath them as well. And then there was probably around anywhere from 20 to 30 students, depending on the time of year. What type of people typically get hired into this role, like demographically speaking? Is it all white cis males, or is there any sort of diversity? in the admissions department? When I first started work, I, I would say it was majority male, but there were several females that worked in our department. So um, 
and as I was leaving, there was actually a couple more females that had been hired. Into full-time positions. Into full-time positions, yeah. So I wouldn't necessarily say that it was like one way or the other, male or female that way. Um, all white. Um, and really, a vast majority of them are uh, communications majors. <laughs> okay. <some> okay. So. <laughs> if someone is in that position, they want to maybe make a career out of admissions, what does that look like? What would be the next steps? What type of people are getting promoted? Like, what's the institution like? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, I don't think, I think most people could do the job that I did. Maybe not as good as I did it, but um, <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um, and so it is a good career to get started in for working for BYU Idaho. That is, we did work a lot with other universities throughout the state of Idaho and Utah, and people with our kind of equivalent job titles. Well, there wasn't necessarily the equivalent because most of the universities hired people that were just recruiters, and they would go out and then. What I did as far as like the marketing aspect was a different person, but I felt like BYU would have actually paid pretty well for what we were doing as far as a job. So it's a definitely a good career. And the church really takes care of you as far as its benefits go. There's great um, health care and all that kind of stuff, all you know, paid for by tithing dollars. <laughs> and so it is a good career. If you want to advance, that's the part where it can kind of get a little tricky there. In my opinion, you have to play the part. Like you have to be a yes man, yes sir kind of person that just doesn't rock the boat, doesn't ask questions, and you have to dress the part and look the part and and just be that person. So last week you had said dressing the part means coming in in a suit and a tie every day for work. Making sure I'm understanding. Yeah, and maybe not necessarily a suit, but like if you are wearing a suit, you're then standing out above that other person, right? But definitely like a white shirt kind of person is going to be, in my opinion, looked at a little differently than me who was like in checkered shirts. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can always tell just being on campus, and this is me remembering from, you know, almost 15 years ago, where... Um, you could tell the religious instructors from the regular professors that were on campus because all of the all of the SNI instructors were in suits and ties. And then your regular professors just dressed like a regular professor would. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Your English professors are wearing tweed jackets and, exactly. and doctors. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, exactly. And you know, and I I was never even when I attended church, I wasn't a white shirt type of guy. And, and I remember one time I actually got called into the elders quorum uh, presidency. And when they called me, I was like, I'll accept this calling, but you're not going to see me wear a suit. I am not going to wear a white shirt. I'll wear colored shirts. I might one day wear a white shirt. Who knows? <laughs> but and I like I had I laid out like how I I will be in this position. They were like, OK, that's fine. <laughs> so. But that's that's just how I was. I probably pushed the envelope on campus as far as like. You know, I would wear more towards like the docker type style pant rather than like your slacks and and checkered shirts and, you know, that kind of stuff. And, but yeah, you look at the people who get promoted and it's just like, yeah, they, they seem like they're all the yes sir kind of people. We had a big changeover with our director and that was definitely the, the case in that situation. Not the person who I think 
really probably deserved it, but. I have follow-up questions with there, but sticking on the same subject, as I've talked with people that have worked for different institutions within the LDS church at the MTC, at the church headquarters, and even abroad, there seems to be a cap or a ceiling for women within the church where they can get promoted up to a certain point, but then beyond that point, they don't seem to get any sort of promotions. Was that something that you witnessed within the administration department? Yes and no. I I hate to go like full in on that too much because there is a female vice president. And she oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, she is the I think the first female vice president out of any of the church schools. And but here's the funny thing. <laughs> this was another thing that I saw happen a lot at the university was you would have someone get promoted, right? And then there's all these other people that they were good friends with down here. And all of a sudden, you would see all of their friends get promoted, regardless of how well they were doing it, whatever they were doing. I remember at one point, like hearing from everywhere on campus, like how much the financial aid department was in disarray. Everybody hated working there. It was just like the worst organization to be in (laughs) on campus. And then all of a sudden, it announced that the guy who was the director was like moving up (laughs) the ladder. And everybody was like, wait, what? But he was really good friends with the guy he moved under. Like they, they both got hired at the same time and like they worked in the same department for a long time. And, and I, I kind of heard, I don't really know the ins and outs at all about, um, that vice president, the female vice president being, um, I don't know if I want to use her name or anything. I mean, I'm sure you can just go onto the website and see her. A listener can Google it. Go find it out if you're interested. Yeah, you can go Google it. Um, but I heard the same thing that she like, that the department she was running, like everybody hated working for her, but all of a sudden was just getting promoted up the ladder and up the ladder and all that kind of stuff. And one thing I noticed was another thing a pattern that I saw at least was that everything underneath you can be crumbling and just in disarray and everybody hates working for you and all that kind of stuff. But it doesn't matter as long as what you're reporting to the person above you is hearing glowing reviews, right? Because that person up there is never coming and asking any of us what's going on down at the bottom. It's a very, very top down like organization. and there's a very specific instance that happened in even in admissions where that was very evident of that kind of top down. Nobody knew what was going on in our department. I've spoken with some other people that have worked for the church and this is about wages and you can, you know, if this is something you don't want to discuss, that's totally fine. But I've heard that, um, that they don't do raises very often, or there's, there's not a lot of growth personal growth if you're staying in the same position within the LDS institution. Oh, I'll tell you all about this because this, <laughs> this, <laughs> this really annoyed me. I had never heard of anybody ever getting a raise that they asked for. You get an annual increase that's supposed to kind of keep up with inflation and all that kind of stuff, right? But I never heard of anybody getting a raise. One of the ladies who worked in our department um, moved out and went up to the HR department. And I remember she'd worked there for a couple of years and I stopped her one day and I was just like, Hey, does anybody ever get a raise at this university? And she said, no, she's like, you, she's like, I've seen several people ask for it, but they have always been 
denied. You are asked at the university because there was a talk given a long time ago by uh, President or Henry, wait, which one was it? Henry B. Eyring. His son, Henry J. Eyring, is the current president. Henry B. Eyring gave a talk on campus once about doing more with less. And and these are sacred funds that we have all, you know, whatever, 200 billion of them. Um, <laughs> all those sacred funds are being used at this university. So you need to be able to just do more with less money. So you don't get a raise. And But I would say that they do pay you well as far as like for what you are kind of doing. But once you start, that's where you start. And then you just get annual increases. Now, I had worked there for four years. And I'll just tell you, when I started, I was getting paid 45,000 a year. And that was, I was 11, or that was like 12 something years ago. Back then for me, I was like, I mean, that's fantastic. As a school teacher, I was about, I was going to make like 28,000. So, um, so that was great. And then four years later, this guy gets hired and I find out he is getting paid, not 45,000, He's getting paid the exact same amount that I was currently at. And so like, say, just for numbers sake, say I was at, say I was at $50,000 that four years later, he got hired getting paid $50,000. And I was like, so wait, what on earth is the incentive for me to ever do the best job that I can do at this university when I'm never going to be rewarded for that. In fact, they're just going to hire somebody else and pay them the same amount that I'm getting paid. <laughs> and, and like my four years really meant nothing really at that point, as far as like what I had contributed to the university. Fast forward to me leaving the university. And at that time I was getting paid around 60,000 a year. Um, and the girl who worked for me at the university, she was a student, and she worked for me doing all the social media and all that kind of stuff, took my place as the full-time of, of my position and gets paid more now than I was paid when I quit. So I was like, wait a second, that is like so unfair. Like, I put in 11 years here and you're just going to hire some high school student whom I love. She's like one of the greatest people ever. Yeah. This isn't a problem. This isn't something that she had any influence on. No. Yeah. And I'm happy for her getting paid that much, but I was like, goodness gracious, she's getting paid more than I was when I quit. So like, not that I would have gotten paid that much. Like they would have just kept me at that salary. She got more. So they would have waited until the next annual increase. So there's really no incentive for anybody to just, unless you're trying to climb the ladder and get to that next rung where you get paid more, there's really nothing that's going that's like, Oh my gosh, if I do a really good job, I'm going to get rewarded for that. Not that everything has to be rewards, but you have these ideals of what it should look like. But then when you peek behind the curtain, you see exactly what's happening. Like, I just feel like I should have thought that from the beginning. Seriously. Cause I remember when that, that report came out and I still work for the church and my initial thought was like, okay, well, they have a lot of money. What's the point? And I, I never thought about it deeper than that, you know? And I had someone recently that say, like, you're telling me that if Jesus came down to earth right now, he'd be like, keep investing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not like, let's give that to all the poor. <laughs> so there's really no incentive for you to perform better than your peers, if you will, unless you're trying to get a promotion. Yeah. 
as you're working there, is this something that people talk about in like the halls by the water cooler? Is this like a frustration that a lot of people have that work for BYU Idaho? Certain people, I guess if you feel comfortable talking to certain people about it, because they they technically have a policy that you're not allowed to talk about it, even though I'm pretty sure that that's illegal. That I'm pretty sure is illegal. Yes. And I, I heard it said from HR people that like, no, you're not allowed to talk about your salaries with other people. And I was like, I'm pretty sure that's illegal. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, like there were certain people I talked to about it, like that I felt comfortable around and, you know, we'd have rant sessions about things. So. So one of the, the bullet points that you have in this outline, you said that there's no, there's very little punishment for someone who is on bad behavior or maybe not performing in the position. What do you mean by that? I think there's a story here that, that we've got to hear. <laughs> yes. Um, well, obviously, I kind of already mentioned like where you would hear that like departments were like, everybody hated working for this person and then that person would get promoted or whatever, right? Now, these departments more administrative side or are they like part of the pedagogy side? Yeah, more administrative. So like, you know, there's the financial aid office, there's the housing office, you know, and things like that. So all in that administrative building. But yeah, like a specific situation, the director that I was hired under was a very interesting man. Um, to a certain extent, and I really don't want to speak ill of this guy or anything like that, but he was like Michael Scott off of The Office. <laughs> <laughs> Which, if you've watched it, uh, hilarious to watch from the outside. But if you were to ever really like... We were talking to my son about this the other day as we were watching The Office. I was like, if you really like were one of those employees in that office, it's a horrible work environment. <laughs> <laughs> So like everything from like just needing to be like loved, I guess, or like needing to be a friend. Yeah, needing that constant validation. And that validation to like inappropriate jokes and things like that. I So one instance of this, like I was on a business trip and he was with us and we were in the car and there were several of us in there, all guys. And they were talking about the girl that I took her position. And she was a single uh, lady and he had made this comment like sometimes when women just get old in the church, they should just go get laid. And I was like, and he continued is like, it would just solve all of their problems that they have. And I like, I was sitting in the back of the car and I was like, did I just hear that from like the director of this? And it was like, it was one of those moments where he was trying to be like one of these guys, guys or whatever. And it, it didn't land, obviously. And we just kind of moved on from it or whatever. Well, I came back that next, I think it was probably like a Monday or Tuesday. And I went up to the HR department and I was like, I need to report something that was said. And I, I went and I talked to the lady and I said, so here's the situation. Here's what was said. Here's the conversation. And she was like, and it was a female HR lady. She seemed absolutely shocked. <laughs> and she's like, okay, well, I'll, I'll talk to my supervisors about this. And yeah, we'll, we'll take care of it. I never heard a thing about it. <laughs> Nothing else. Then as time progressed, like you would hear all these different stories. Like one of the students told me that she was at uh, the mall and she was like at Victoria's Secret or something like that. And he walked up behind her and was like, you should pick out the the purple one and point it at a bra. And this is a student. And I was like, wow. how inappropriate is that? 
Yeah. And I mean, there was a long list of things that he had said to students and students had told me about it and other, other people in the office. And, and a lot of it was just kind of like, you know, stories you would hear passed around and like, Oh my gosh, that's him being him. And he just needs to be liked or whatever. And he's just trying to make jokes and be funny, but it's not coming across that way. And, and then all of a sudden one day, and he had been the director for years and years and years. I get this phone call from the Title IX office. And I don't, do you know what the Title IX office is? So the Title IX office is the office that's in charge of taking care of like inappropriate sexual harassment or like students reporting rape and things like that, right? He says, hey, we've had some reports. I'm wondering if you could come up and talk to me for a second. And oh my gosh. <laughs> I like my brain was like, wait, did I say something? Did I do? What have I done? And he goes, oh, hey, it's not about you. It's about somebody else. And I was like, goodness gracious, lead with that next time. I know, right? <laughs> oh, man. Give me a heart attack. <laughs> I go upstairs and he says, okay, so we received a document in the HR department. And then the HR department has looped me into this whole thing. And the document outlines a bunch of inappropriate behavior by your director. He said, I've, I've called in several, like two or three students that are named in this document. And every single one of them said, you should talk to Brady. <laughs> he's like, so that's, so that's why I've called you in. He's like, why would they want me to talk to you? And I said, well, I'm a bit of a gossip. <laughs> no, I, I was like, I really, the real story was that a lot of students, I think, felt like they could trust me. I had students in my office all the time coming and telling me things or breaking down, crying about like their boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever's happening. And I, I think I was just one of those people that like the students would talk to. And so I knew a lot of these stories and I was like, well, they don't go anywhere. I tell the HR and they just, they just pushed off to the side. And so I, I was like, that's why is because they've, I know about all of these stories. And he was like, so elaborate on some of these. Right. And I was like, well, yeah, he pointed out on this snowman in our office that had a carrot and he told one of the students it looked like a penis. And so, um, like, I was like, these are just really dumb things. I can list them all off. And, oh, man. and so all of a sudden it creates this huge uproar in our office. And he is sent home on a administ paid administrative leave. And every single full-time person in the office is called in to speak with his boss, the managing director, and the vice president. And we have these interviews. And I know from talking to all of my coworkers that everybody was very honest that they didn't like necessarily working for him. He was awkward to be around in a lot of instances. And it was, there's a lot going on there. And so we all kind of like told our story. One of the people in our office who in my opinion, was kind of one of those yes, sir, yes, ma'am kind of people. And was, I never saw him not wear a suit. In fact, when we would go on offsite retreats and do different things, and we were told we could wear casual, the only thing he would, he would show up in his suit without the jacket and without a tie. 
still a white shirt, still slacks. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, we're we're playing like pickleball, man. Like, what are you doing? And he was never involved in any of like the office gossip or anybody else talking about that kind of stuff. And the there was another guy, my direct boss, like my manager, who everybody loved. Super brilliant guy, almost had his doctorate. And his doctorate was in higher education administration. <laughs> like, like what better candidate could you have than the guy that everybody loves has a degree in this and is like super, super smart. Well, the, the director who was the one doing all the inappropriate stuff gets moved to be in charge of his own department where he is a department of one. <laughs> Nobody underneath him he, it was a promotion, like a job where he got paid more. So he got this job where now he just reports to one person. Nobody works for him. Quite honestly, I'm not even sure that he has anything to do in this job. Because Yeah, what, what are his duties? like? So it was managing concurrent enrollment, which is high school students taking college courses, which we don't have a ton of them. And so like, that's all he was doing. In fact, he still used us to promote it when we went out on the road and he didn't travel. And so I was like, I don't even know what you do, but all of a sudden it's like this promotion where you're like off in your own little island can do whatever you want. And then they gave his job to that other guy who, you know, was and Mr. Suit and Tie, which I have nothing against Mr. Suit and Tie. He is a great guy and and for all of his faults that he has, He's got a lot of good positives. He's the type of guy who's, he is super, super, super smart. And he'll let you know that. And he'll argue you into like the ground when he, <laughs> when he thinks his opinion is right. And so he oftentimes is doing whatever he feels is right. But if you do challenge him, in the moment, it might not go so well for you. But he always, the day after, will come and sit down with you and be like, hey, I, I couldn't sleep last night. I felt like that went wrong and he will apologize and all that kind of stuff. So great guy. But personally, I felt this should have gone to the other guy because <laughs> he would have been really good. So that, I mean, that's an example of like this kind of behavior that I was like, oh my gosh, like any other organization, I feel like you would have been fired for all. Like, I mean, it was a list of like 35 different things. That's insane that they, that they kept him on. Especially saying it around students. Now, I'm not going to say that that's the norm there. Sure. That's just one experience that I I was privileged, I guess, to be a part of. At the time, I knew the HR director. He actually lived pretty close to me. And I had heard him say on a couple of occasions, he's like, the HR department here, he's like, I have no authority whatsoever in this university. Like, I can't do anything because it's all up to the vice presidents and the presidents. They're the ones that will make those decisions. And I, I mean, like, look at it. When we were all interviewed about what was going on at our apartment, HR wasn't involved. It was, it was the vice president. <laughs> like, so he left the university because he just didn't. He felt like he had nothing to do there, really. So, except hire people. Would he pass things on that he found to the university president, and they just wouldn't act on it? Yeah. So. Either whether they acted on it or not, it was all then up to them. It had nothing to do with like where HR, I think, generally kind of is like more outside of like the organization itself. So they kind of they kind of are like a third party. They can kind of 
regulate what's happening, it wasn't that way as far as what I was kind of being told. I hope I didn't come across as like saying or feeling like this university was a terrible place to work by any means. It wasn't. It was it was a good job and um I really enjoyed my time there. The boss that I had for most of the time that I was there, my direct manager, one of my greatest friends and absolutely love the guy. He's left the university too and um he he didn't want to work there anymore either. <laughs> he now works in Texas and we keep in contact all the time. The people who still work in that admissions office absolutely love them. Um great 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 people and you know it is a good university where you get a good education and all that kind of stuff. Where I'm at now in my life it's like obviously I don't believe in the church and what its teachings and that kind of stuff. Um and so that's basically the reason I needed to leave working there. And I have nothing against the people or the university or anything like that. Most people that have left employment with the church, that's kind of the, the sentiment that, that they express. Great people that work there, uh, maybe some internal institutional ideologies that don't make working for the church easy, uh, but full of good, well-intentioned people. And I'll, I'll say I love working for myself now. Like that's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've got a pretty cool boss at this point, yeah, right? <laughs> my boss is great. Of course, it brings on its own little stresses. Well, I say little, a lot of stresses where I, I tend to be a little bit more like feeling like it's always going to fail the business and all that kind of stuff. And so I'm constantly like stressed out about like you know making sure we have clients coming in and that our therapists are taken care of. Um, and I try to take what I've learned not to do from the university and apply that to, um, you know, being the boss now and really trying to treat my employees as best as I can and, and just always being there for them. And you did mention that there were focus groups that you did. Were those, those, uh, trips to the seminary? To the seminary buildings. Yeah. Okay. okay. Which was really funny because we came back from those and, reported on it to universal relations like this is and to the higher ups like this is what the the kids are saying about we also asked about the brochures and what they thought about them and all of them were like yeah well it's kind of like you know conservative and stuffy and all that kind of stuff (laughs) um but they were like yeah well this is what we do they always fell back universal relations always fell back to one thing that president bednar who elder bednar now but president at the time what he said when he was the president, that everything the university should do, every, anything that they do or portray should be um, dignified, scholarly, and clean cut or something like that. It was like three things. And like that's how they, they run that department. And so it's like, if you produce a magazine, it's dignified, scholarly, and clean cut. And, like, and that's, that's how they, and I'm like, yeah, well, I don't think he meant to like leave off fun and exciting. <laughs> like, like it, that's not like it's not two separate things. I always said to them, I, I was like, you look at the enzyme, right? And it's for it's for the mass majority of the the church. And the church knows that. Well, what do they do for the youth? They create another magazine called The Friend. Very different style. They put cartoons. They put things that appeals to that demographic. You guys are just trying to appeal to 45-year-old men. I don't know what you're doing. 
it's like the basics of marketing is understanding your audience and understanding exactly what they what will catch their attention and help you get your message to them. Like it's one on one. It's like the most basic part of marketing. Yes, for sure. And then when you do market research, you pay attention to it and you actually do something about it instead of just ignoring it and just being like, ah, eh, whatever. <laughs> okay, so maybe one last question before we wrap this all up. What was perhaps the craziest essay? application that you read <laughs> or maybe the most outrageous thing while you're getting these new applicants that you uh, encountered on your desk? Oh, yes. I've got several of those. In fact, I would, <laughs> well, let's hear them. I think that's, <laughs> yes, that's what everybody That's the only reason people are here. Um, that's right. <laughs> in fact, I would, I would use these stories when I was on the road talking to kids and stuff and I'd tell them about the application. Um, so one of them, there was a kid who talked about a purple mist that would visit him at night and talk to him and would would tell him things that he should do. And I was like, oh my gosh, like what is going on here? Did he not shake the mist's hand? Isn't that what you're supposed to do to find out <laughs> if it's a... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> he, we called the bishop and the bishop was like, I don't know. I've never heard about this. And and then the bishop like kind of called back. He's like, yeah, so I kind of talked to him about it. And yeah, he believes in this purple mist thing. And so he got denied. And so he appealed his denial. And he's like, in the appeal, he was like, I know you guys are denying me for this purple mist thing. It's not that bad. Let me explain. And he went on to explain it. I'll introduce you. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> he went on to explain it. And like we were like, uh, definitely a no. <laughs> oh, no. So. Uh, it's giving me color out of space vibes if yes. you're HP Lovecraft. <laughs> so that was one. I had one. One of my favorite ones was this this girl who kind of there's like four prompts of what you're supposed to write about, right? She pretty much ignored what the prompts were and like wrote an essay that just continued through all of them. And it was about how she wasn't a member of the church, but she was like. I've always wanted to be beautiful. <laughs> and so I started to pay attention to the beautiful girls at school. And I realized that the most beautiful girls were the Christian girls. And so I started to think to myself, well, maybe the more strict Christian you are, the more beautiful you become. So I've decided to join the Mormon church. <laughs> Oh my and, goodness. Like, went on this whole thing. And then at the very end, she starts talking about how she's obsessed with this boy named Connor or something like that. And she was like, I do everything I can to get Connor to notice me. I drop things in front of him and he doesn't pay attention. And then at the very end, she ends the whole thing with if Connor never realizes I'm his one true love, I'll be okay because I'll still have my cats. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, I, I sat there in my office reading this and I was like, oh, I feel so, I feel for this girl. <laughs> she just wants to be beautiful and loved. She's got her cats. That's so funny. Have you ever heard of Mortified? And I don't know that if they do it out there in Rexburg, but there's a podcast called Mortified and it's people will read their diaries and journal entries from when they were teenagers. So it's people <laughs> our age, you know, they're adults, they're well into their life and they still have their journals from their kids. They sound kind of like what you're talking about. Yes. Mm. Super cringy. Yeah. And it's like reading back, you're like, Oh no, like these people, they're like reading their journal entries. And sometimes 
they, they do live shows here in Portland. So like we'll go to them and like the people will read it live and they'll have pictures of it's hilarious. Anyway, so what you're describing is giving me vibes of this mortified podcast. We had I mean, one last one. Like we had a kid and I remember I was sitting there reading the essay. I could just tell just by reading it that I was like, this kid is brilliant. One of the questions was, what's the hardest thing you've ever had to go through? And his essay was about constipation and pooping. <laughs> and it was so brilliantly written. Like the metaphors he was using, he talked about, he's like, at one point he was like, I felt like I was Jonah, except I wasn't in the whale. The whale was in me. And like all of this stuff, and it was so, so poetic. I was just like, and I hadn't at that point looked at what his GPA was. But I was like, oh, this guy's genius. And I went and looked and sure enough, it was like 4.0, 34 on the ACTs. <laughs> too funny i'm sure that was probably a highlight of, of working there was engaging with these students and getting to know them yeah we had a whole book where we'd collect like really funny essays or <laughs> really good stuff so that's awesome was there any any final remarks anything you want to kind of leave the audience off with from these discussions about both working in admissions and then working for the institution byu idaho no, I think, I mean, I feel like I've said pretty much everything. It was it was a good time while I was there. It's not for me now, but it's a great place. And I'm grateful that you had me on. And hopefully I didn't sound too silly or dumb <laughs> throughout the whole no, thing. No, no, it was great. I'm sure the audience is going to love it. So thanks so much for giving me a couple hours of your time and, and sure. letting me put your story onto a wider audience. Yeah, thanks, Scott. It was fun being here. And if you ever want to chat about books more, we can do that. You know, I might just have to bring you on because I love I love literature so much. In fact, I was going to send you a text as soon as this was over or maybe when we end the recording on on what books from that Japanese author I should read first. Oh yeah. That would probably be a good idea cuz some of them are like I had my brother I hate to recommend him really to people cuz people come back to me and they're like what on earth did I just read? Well, thanks so much for your time today, Brady. And again, for the listeners, you can find them if you're looking for, for therapy or counseling out in the Rexburg or the Pocatello area, Greenstone Counseling, go reach out to them and support them in their business. Thanks, Scott. A big thank you again to Brady Nordfeld for giving me his time so that we can have this discussion about the inner workings of the LDS Church and working uh, specifically at the BYU-Idaho campus in the admissions department. It was a pleasure to chat with him and learn a little bit more to get a behind-the-scenes look at what goes on on the campus. Be sure to check out Greenstone Counseling, support Brady and Erica if you're looking for therapy in the Pocatello or Rexburg area and wherever you find yourself out there. Filling up a digital grocery bag for your grocery order this week. I hope that you have an excellent day. <laughs>